1: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts.
0: Five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. here on the Wednesday edition, midweek for you. Trust you're um, staying safe and feeling well and getting used to the new normal here, such as it is. Lots of challenges to be sure And um, we're going to continue to kind of work together to try and navigate all of this and ascertain where do we go from here. And uh, maybe eventually we'll be able to even look back and understand how we got to where we're at so we can avoid mistakes in the future spend some time talking about that. We'll also give you an update on how the Bay Area is uh, digging out of COVID-19. John Anderson with the Bay Area Rescue Mission will have an update for us on the challenges that ministry is facing in ministering to the San Francisco Bay Area's homeless population, a population that, uh, well, in light of current circumstances, may well grow as we see more people thrown out of work and the economic challenges that we are all facing. And of course, in addition to understanding how COVID has impacted our economy, um, getting an understanding as to where we might be headed and what trends will be seen and how this suddenly changed from what had been a historic 11 plus year, nearly 11 year heading toward 12 bull market into now what is solidly a bear market may be for some time to come. And it's said that a variety of industries are going to be impacted by this for a very, very long time. You probably read it. Warren Buffett has basically divested Hathaway, Brookshire Hathaway, from the airline industry. I talked to a good friend today who said flew back from an extended sort of um, involuntary vacation that lasted a month and a half, and uh, the airplane, not even a third full, how about this, 20 people on the entire flight. So many industries are going to be impacted. And would it surprise you if I reminded you that we we were at the height of our last economic crisis, um, clear back May of 2008, oil, was at almost $151 a barrel. That was May of 2008. Fast forward 12 years. By April of 2020, $18.84. And certainly, different economies are going to respond differently to this crashing of oil prices and to get some insight as to what all this means, understanding production, inventory, demand, and ultimately... (coughs) the impact on our own economy. We're joined by financial economist, author, journalist, and publisher of the affluent Investor Daily, Jerry Bauer. And Jerry, great to have you back on the show again. It's
1: great to be with you again. I really appreciate you having me back.
0: You know, as we... Talk about the way the economy breathes and moves and undulates. Certainly economists like yourself look at a variety of indicators, leading and lagging ones that um, run the gambit from those on the leading edge. That includes everything from what's happening on Wall Street to manufacturing activity, certainly to, a co- to a commodities. On the lagging side, typically we see things like the unemployment rate, and especially time spent on unemployment corporate profits, even interest rates, all indicative of lagging economic indicators. The one indicator that I think a lot of us um, know very well and, uh, and look to to help gain some understanding as to what exactly is going on in our economy, and that is oil. And certainly, boy, Jerry, talk about a roller coaster ride. As I indicated, in just a 12 year period, we've gone from having some of the highest numbers we could have ever imagined possible $150 a barrel. That's unbelievable. And now we're saying $18 a barrel. That's unbelievable. Tell us what happened. Why is the bottom falling out of oil prices?
1: The bottom is falling out of oil prices because two things are happening at the same time. That um, tend to drive oil prices down, and they're not always in tandem, or even often in tandem. So when you've got two powerful forces pulling down at the same time, then you're going to get these freakishly low oil prices. Um, and they are that there is very little demand for oil. So if we don't want to buy oil, if we're not burning oil, if we're not using oil, um, then you know that's a lower demand for it. Um, And at the same time, we had an increase in the supply of oil, Um, and you wouldn't usually have that. Usually, if oil prices are low, um, the oil-producing countries of the world, OPEC, would say, well, wait a minute, it doesn't make sense to pump all this oil out of the ground when we're losing money on it. But what happened is oil economics got subsumed to geopolitical spats between Saudi Arabia and Russia. You know they have they have got a proxy war going on in Iran, et cetera, and in um, and in Syria and in southern Turkey. So, um, so the Russians decided to stick it to the Saudis by upping production, even though the Russians would lose money on the deal. So it's kind of like a you know I, yeah, I'm hurting myself, but I'm hurting you more. So I'm willing to hurt myself. The combination of those things happening at the same time gave us oil that was at an extremely low price. Then there was something else weird that happened. All of this was happening at the end of a one month contract to buy oil um, and At the end of that contract, what happens is people just renew the contract right. But at this point, um, they didn't want to renew the contract because, so people who were investing in oil, they, think, they thought they were investing in paper, right? They're investing in an oil future, and then all of a sudden, there's the very real prospect that someone's going to say, okay, here's your million barrels of oil. Where do you want me to put it, sir? Where do you want it delivered? That they'd actually have to take physical delivery of the oil, and there wasn't any space to store it. So you bring those two things together, which give us really, really low prices, beneath the cost of storage prices, the value is, is lower than the cost of storing it, bring that together with a storage problem, and you get negative oil spot prices, which scared the daylights out of people. It scared the daylights out of me for about half a day, and then I went and I did the analysis and kind of got to the bottom of it, and it, although it was weird, it wasn't chaotic it wasn't something that meant nothing it wasn't a monster Um it was a signal of you know that demand is slowing down which means the global economy is slowing down but there's some other things in there Like the, you know, the, the Saudis versus the Russia thing that really isn't about global growth and just the weird thing about the expiration of a contract and a storage problem that wasn't really directly about global growth. So once you put it in perspective, it's a warning sign. No doubt about it. You don't want oil at slot prices negative and you don't want oil at $19 a barrel. If you're, if you expect a growing economy, you won't get that. But it also is probably in the concern not panic zone once you put things in perspective.
0: And perspective, of course, is is critically important right now because there's so much conflicting news, and we see this uh, knee-jerk reaction by investors on Wall Street and the roller coaster ride: up 400 today, down 200 yeah. tomorrow. Uh, you know, th- you have no indication as to where it's going next, but either up or down. That's <laughs> that's it. That's that's about as basic as it as it gets. But I have to wonder, Jerry, from your Analysis, And I know at a moment when we saw these prices dip so low, some folks kind of got hopeful for a minute that that meant when we pull up at the pump, they'll pay yeah. us to fill up no, 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 <laughs> wishful work, no thinking. Life. Yeah. That said, uh, we we've gone through a, a tumultuous time here and we're continuing um to to sort of figure out where we're going to find uh, you know the level of water and 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 seeking its own setting aside for a moment the the oil producer lovers spat between Russia and um and Saudi Arabia. Um we've made an interesting transition here. Those that are old enough Jerry to remember the oil lines and the oil shortages of the 1970s, recall OPEC and what happened then. We've made, though, this interesting paradigm shift. With advancement in technology, we found out, guess what? We have access to just about as many dead dinosaurs as they do over in the Middle East. Thanks to this wonderful thing called fracking, we can pull it out of the ground right here in the good old U.S. of A. to the point where, in the course of 40 years, we went from being a major oil importer to being a major oil exporter. I have to wonder, though, how much of that is just going to absolutely collapse and and what would the recovery process or length of time potentially look like before oil achieved a level where moving back to fracking here in the United States made economic sense. Because in in my book right now, looking at all the numbers, trying to frack and pull oil out of the ground at, at, as you say, $18, $20 a barrel just doesn't seem to make any economic sense.
1: No, it doesn't. Um, And I live on top of the Marcellus Shale, the largest deposit in America. We've actually had um, our property um, property. uh, evaluated uh, by a fracking company. There's little orange ties up there in, in the woods behind our house where they were uh, doing their testing. So I kind of like the prices and gas prices to get back up to the point where we can start negotiating with them again. Um, a couple things. One, I'm glad you mentioned the thing in the 70s. Uh, because what, what, the, the, what the smart people told us is that we're almost out of oil, it's not a renewable resource, we can't get at it, it's going to rise in price, and that from now on, I mean, Jimmy Carter did this and the whole thing with the sweaters and all of this declinist thinking, which underestimated the God-given human creativity. We're made to have dominion over the earth, we're good at it when we're faithful to that. Mandate, and we're so good at it, we now have too much oil. So, all of the fear mongering of the 70s about running out of resources. I, it couldn't be more wrong. It's not It's not just wrong. It's not just accidentally wrong. It is catastrophically in the wrong direction wrong. We have an oil glut, not, a, a, not an oil shortage, long after the period that they told us we would run out of the stuff. Um, I think one of the problems we're up against is every time we have a crisis in America, we print money to get out of the crisis. So we were afraid of Y2K, and we printed money, and that caused a little bubble, and then the bubble popped. That's a tech bubble, right? And then we printed money for like three or four years, and we created a housing bubble, and that popped, and we were terrified, and we created a lot of money, and we created another bubble. So what bubble have we been creating since the 2008 crisis? We've been creating a higher education bubble, and we probably created a fracking bubble. So much excess money being pumped into the system has to go someplace the technological ed- ed- cutting edge in 1999 was the internet the technological cutting edge of the past 10 years has been fracking so we probably overinvested in fracking um we probably have too much capacity because every time you print your way out of a panic or out of a jam you're creating a bubble somewhere you may not know where until it pops So we probably did have a shale oil, a fracking bubble, and we have a higher education bubble and and arguably even a healthcare bubble. And those are the things that are most vulnerable now to the slowdown that we have now.
0: Yeah. And and what I think is particularly disturbing, as you suggested, and that is the notion that we really don't know where the next bubble is going to emerge or pop from. Uh, It's ironic to think that when Ronald Reagan first took office, he inherited a debt that was under a trillion dollars. I mean, that seems like a million years ago, but in fact, it was barely 40 years ago. And now here we sit, not at even the 12 trillion when we launched into the Great Recession of 2008-2009, but more than double that number. In fact, they're predicting by the end of 2020, dependent upon how many more bailout packages Congress passes, will be a 23 trillion nine hundred billion dollars and it's only gonna get worse. And that that bubble that you speak of, I think the big concern there is that it's it's I, I liken it to the invisible dog fence. It's there, you just don't know where it is, and by the time you figure it out, you get shocked and it's too late. Let's talk about that. We continue our conversation, also taking a look at the impact of these historically low numbers The price per barrel, and how it impacts different economies differently. With us today is financial economist, author, journalist, and the publisher of the Affluent Investor Daily, Jerry Bauer. Jerry, by the way, his website available online. It's simple. It's affluentinvestor.com. That's affluentinvestor.com. And by the way, you don't have to be one to get there. The idea is you go there, you learn, and you become one affluentinvestor.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation here on the Wednesday edition of Lifeline. Right now, though, we're going to step aside and let's let the KFAX Traffic Center take the lead, tell you what's going on on this Wednesday commute. And
1: now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts
0: and we're back to our conversation with leading financial economist, author, journalist, publisher of the Affluent Daily Information on the web at affluentinvestor.com, that's affluentinvestor.com, publisher by the way, I'll correct myself, of Affluent Investor Daily, Jerry Boyer is with us today and been talking about some of the leading and lagging indicators of the economy, one that we certainly all understand as we um, drop in occasionally at the local gas station and fill her up though we're doing a lot less of that here recently i think jerry i've been um, for the few trips that i've taken out of the house i've probably gone through a half a tank of gas Mm -hmm. in well over six weeks which uh, you know feels like i basically parked the car and went on vacation for six weeks Um, let's talk a bit about the the issue here of the winners and losers certainly Under the circumstances that we're facing right now with the impact of COVID-19 globally, it's probably not a question of winners and losers, but the bigger losers versus the lesser losers. That said, I would imagine when it comes to oil, well, companies that are fracking centric here in the United States are going to be facing a tough time. Is that equally true of different countries that are oil producing nations and how much of that Winning and losing or bigger winner, lesser loser type experience might they see dependent upon the maturity of the individual economies? In other words, um, will a country like the United States, for example, come out better in the oil arena at these prices than a nation like, uh, I don't know, Venezuela?
1: Yes, much, much, much better. Um, uh, Economies that are, I I like the way you put it, mature. Um, Another, the literature sometimes says complex. You know, where there's a lot of knowledge in the economy as opposed to, um, emerging markets or frontier markets, which are less developed, which might have one or two major industries. I mean, look, there's some nations in the world which is, which are basically people with machine guns who live on top of oil patches. Um, and the machine guns are so we keep the oil patches, you know, like Saudi Arabia, for example. Um, and I mean, Russia doesn't have a lot of economy when you take out the oil and gas. Um, it's, it's a nuclear arsenal and an army and you know, oil and gas underneath. So yeah, I think like the, la- that, the last
0: time I was there, they were indicating that something like 60% of the Russian economy is all black, and, black market.
1: Yeah, I can believe that. Um and it's and it's all and it's all kind of trading in services to people who the, who are fundamentally making money based on the hydrocarbons. So the countries that are hit most by this are the countries that are most oil dependent. Um and they also happen to generally be poor countries. Um which by the way, it's an it's, it's interesting to just take a moment here morally and think about people who want to phase out fossil fuels. Uh, people who want to divest from fossil fuels. I'm seeing this a lot in my own industry in finance, where we're going to, you know, we're going to drive the fossil, we're going to sell the the fossil fuel stocks and the bonds, and we're going to drive up their cost of capital and and drive them out of business. Okay, just understand what that means. It means the kind of um, uh, stagnation and and misery and lack of progress that we have now permanently, and. Much worse among the very poorest people than among the richest people. That's what the decision to defossil fuelize means. Uh, so it's nice for people who are knowledge workers in technological centers to go on and on on their blogs – powered by fossil fuels, about how terrible fossil fuels are, that's a luxury. There's a lot of places in the world that simply cannot afford that can't afford to go without them. And it's not just the countries that produce the fossil fuels. The countries that produce the metals, the other commodity producers, the coppers and the, you know, the irons and the rest of them, Well, I mean, the energy comes from fossil fuels, so uh, another bunch of uh, poor countries get hit if they don't have access to fossil fuels. So we're seeing the poorest of the poor hurt in America here, and we're seeing it around uh, around the rest of the world.
0: A sidebar question for you, only because he's been in the news, again, a lot lately. I think most recently for seeing a drop in the stock price because he himself felt he was overvalued, which I don't know, as the head of a company, if you ever want to admit that. But regardless, um, Elon Musk, Tesla, trading at 782 a share today. When oil is at $100 plus per barrel the motivation for um, alternative clean energy, whether we're talking about wind, solar, or electric, there's a higher motivator there. It just, you know, price influences behavior. I know a lot of people like to say that they, they do it simply because they are concerned with the environment, but I think you'd find a far greater degree if people were completely honest that it has more to do with their pocketbook than anything else. That said, with oil prices down where they're at, and no idea whether this is going to be short-term challenge we're facing or may go into, if not multiple quarters, multiple years. How are some of these other companies and alternative means of transportation going to get hammered when they've got competition against oil at, you know, 20 bucks a barrel?
1: Well, they could barely compete when oil was $100 a barrel. I mean, they needed subsidies then, um, so how in the world can they compete when oil prices are this low? Fossil fuels just got an incredible advantage, competitive advantage over the whole world of what I would call largely imaginary utopian hope fuels. Um, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the whole world of, um, you know, windmills and geothermal and all the rest of it. It just cannot compete with the fracking revolution and with global demand this low. So it makes that proposition much less, um, you know, much less viable. And, of course, what we're going to get are calls for more subsidies for solar and the rest of it. Elon Musk, by the way, you know, he tried solar and it didn't work. (laughs) They took the company money from Tesla and bought his failing solar company. So, you know, that that kind of thing is going to, they're going to call for more subsidies. I don't think they are going to get more subsidies. I don't think we're going to be in the mood to subsidize green billionaires. Um, So, I think it's, it's, Fossil fuels um, for the time, you know, for basically for the foreseeable future. I don't see us getting rid of fossil fuels in my lifetime or even significantly diminishing our dependence on them. I see us getting better at getting them out of the ground. It's a gift. It's free wealth that God gave to us. Not completely free. We have to mix our ingenuity with it. And I see no reason why we should throw it away just because um, people have dreams of something else.
0: I think if we, we hang on to the notion of making automobiles as fuel-efficient as we possibly can, at the end of the day, it's very difficult from a an investment or an ROI viewpoint to, to really compete with anything else that's out there. I mean, even as much as a state like California loves to tout the wonders of solar then you look at, well, 10, 15 years before you break even, and then when you hit the break-even point on your investment, aha, time to replace all those batteries. And I would suspect a final question for you, Jerry, in, in light of where things stand with the economy at the moment, and, and people are going to be weighing their um, investments in things like durable goods and automobiles much more seriously now. Wouldn't you imagine the automobile that your next-door neighbor, Gus, who tinkers around on the weekends, can get up underneath the hood and fix, will probably have a greater chance to just keep people with the internal combustion engine for a while as opposed to the guy that says, you know, I want to do the right thing here for the uh, environment. I'm going to go out and buy myself a Tesla even if I have to pay Elon Musk to come down and fix the thing at midnight because I can't pull into the average gas station or repair this thing of myself.
1: I mean, the problems with the Tesla. I mean, they were breaking down on the way back from the showroom. You know, they had trouble transporting them from the factory to the showroom because they kept breaking down. And there's a real leadership problem there, but there's a deeper problem. This is virtue signaling. Um, and it's not – Here's the. It, it, is it really about doing good or is it about being seen to be doing good, to be seen mm. by, uh, and by men? Well, I mean, what are electric companies really, what do electric cars really run on? Well, they run on coal because most of the electricity in the United States is produced by coal. Um, so they're coal burners. It's just we don't see the burning. That happens out of our sight, somewhere, someplace, you know, someplace in a power plant. Someone's burning coal, and then we have nice, clean electricity, and we don't see what's kind of going on behind the curtain. So if
0: there's no, if there's no, if there's no tailpipe p- out of which the the smoke is billowing, then we are we feel uh, that we're doing our, our fair share to help the environment, with not us, not recognizing that. Oh, there's a tailpipe. It's just located, you know, a couple of hundred miles. Miles away and much taller.
1: It's huge. It's coal. It's worse than oil. It's certainly worse than natural gas. Really big tailpipe. It's just safely someplace out of our sight.
0: Jerry, we appreciate the time, and uh, folks want to get more information. You know, smart investors um, and the ones that are going to survive this experience will be the ones that are informed investors and trying to navigate the world of retirement planning and investing right now. Um, You know, it takes a lot of personal uh, fortitude and, uh, you know, a good dose of uh, maybe Tums on the side just in case. Um, Get more information about Um, Jerry's work, you can find him online at affluentinvestor.com. That's affluentinvestor.com. Financial economist, author, journalist, publisher of the Affluent Investor Daily, Jerry Bauer. Jerry, thanks so much for the time. 534, let's get caught up on traffic right now. From the KFAX Traffic Center, the latest.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: The debate over religious liberty versus unilateral abortion services paid for in spite of moral objections, I might add, continued in the Supreme Court today, the third day of oral arguments heard by the court. To get an update on all this, Ashley McGuire joins us. Ashley is a senior fellow with the Catholic Association. Ashley, Ashley, thanks so much for being with us today. I I'm there's one core question here I'm 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 really struggling with, as we have been following um a number of these similar cases, but most specifically um the case that relates to a, a group of nuns, the Little Sisters of the Poor. And I'm just trying to wrap my mind around why this is such an important issue for people like Javier Becerra, the Attorney General of California, or Josh Shapiro from Pennsylvania. I think New Jersey's also involved in this current question before the Supreme Court. Why are they concerned that a group of nuns provide abortion services? I don't get that.
2: Well, you know, I think, honestly, I think that the whole case sort of lays bare their tactics and where their passions lie, which is that even during a global pandemic, when you have nuns who, of all the nuns in the world, are the ones who have dedicated their lives to caring for the poor dying elderly, so the people who are most impacted by coronavirus, Um, that they will not give up trying to make them, um, trying to involve them in providing things like abortion pills to their employees. And, you know, I think they would say, oh, it's just, you know, it's a piece of paper they have to sign. Um, But the reality is anybody who's ever had moral qualms about anything knows that sometimes it's just the littlest action that can mean all the difference. And well, and so, I think sometimes, you know,
0: too, in, in in this case here, the the, the example of people that, that uh, how should I say this, um, people without a moral conviction don't really understand those that have one. Does that make sense?
2: Oh, sure. Although, at the same time, I think they understand the moral conviction here, and I think they understand the stakes, and I think they see this as getting a toe in the door that, oh, if they can just get these nuns to have to sign a piece of paper then they can take the next step and the next step and then it's not far from there to you know christian doctors being forced to perform abortions or christian pharmacists being forced to dispense uh euthanasia drugs and it's you know to them it's the classic give an inch take a mile
0: now help me understand something, um, and I, I realize you're you're not an attorney, but maybe you can provide an insight to something since you've been following this case so closely. A number of years ago, there was a bill plan passed called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, that essentially ought to be the vehicle that can provide for some some middle ground on debates just like this very one that we're discussing here wherein a organization be it religious in nature or or even simply the ownership of a company I'm I'm thinking of hobby lobby as an example that based on moral and religious grounds can ask for an exemption from things like this And under the terms of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, ought to be granted that. Because that's what we do here. We honor the Constitution. We have high regard for things like people's First Amendment rights. So why is it that even under this particular debate, a measure like the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is not helping to prevent this kind of, what else do we call it, but outright abuse of the Little Sisters of the Poor?
2: Well, you know, the court, the first time the Little Sisters went to the court, the court basically said, um, you know, they're entitled to an exemption, and they said to the federal government, which was then controlled by President Obama, work something out. You know, you know clearly the federal government thinks that this universal free access to birth control is important, but they have a valid religious liberty claim. Find a solution. Um, and the Little Sisters have long maintained Uh, that and and their attorneys have said that the government can provide this directly to employees who can't get it from employers who have a religious exemption Um, but you know what you have here it's very strange what happened was the court said that then president trump was elected he issued an executive order saying no employer should ever be forced to violate their conscience via their health care plans and then the attorney general's sued and said the president doesn't have the authority to do that so you're having a little bit of like a power play here where these attorneys general are saying uh we have this weird right to sort of override your authority and caught in the crosshairs of the little sisters of the poor. so here you have they're literally on eight year maybe nine at this point of being involved in litigation and ultimately what it is is a power struggle between ideologues who are beholden to sexual ideological extremism on those who respect the constitution and religious liberty. And the little sisters of the poor are unfortunately stuck in the middle and um, in, in shame on, on these attorneys general for not even being willing in the middle of a global pandemic to back off.
0: Yeah. And this is, uh, this is the irony here that in so much as their almost entire focus he is dealing with poor and the elderly and people that are right on the edge. Um, and instead of just saying, you know what, this is a bridge too far, let's well mm-hmm. enough be left alone and move on. No, they, they continue to, uh, to create a problem here. And, uh, you know, thank goodness that there are people that are willing to stand up before the court and say, no, this is wrong and draw a line in the sand. Um, But otherwise, the debate continues the third day today, as we say, of oral arguments before the Supreme Court. And it's interesting, you you um, pondered the same question that I think even um, Chief Justice Roberts pondered out loud today. And that is, you mean, we can't come up with an agreement here anywhere, some kind of, uh, you know, live and let live sort of approach. But as you've suggested, Ashley, the stakes are greater. The agenda is significantly larger than just simply trying to force this small group of of Catholic nuns uh, to provide abortion services on demand, including uh, abortifacients through um, insurance coverage uh, vis-a-vis their health care plan to their employees. Now, there's a bigger and grander scheme here, and I think the sense is, as you've suggested, if they can beat them on this point, it will then be open season at so many other levels for people of faith and people of moral conviction. Ashley McGuire, we appreciate the update. Ashley is a senior fellow with the Catholic Association. Information available on the web at thecatholicassociation.org. All right, coming up after an update on traffic, John Anderson with the Bay Area Rescue Mission joins us for an update how to minister to the poor here in the Bay Area in the midst of a pandemic. This is an update. Back with more. Latest.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig
0: Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. As you know, we've been following the impact of the COVID 19 situation here in the Bay Area very closely. And I, of great interest has been the impact on hurting families homeless families and what this means. Certainly in any kind of a shelter environment, the first question you raise is, well, how do people fend for themselves? How does all of this work? Well, to give us an update and to offer some answers, Reverend John Anderson, the Executive Director of the Bay Area Rescue Mission, joins us. And John, as we met last, you indicated that uh, the uptick in things like providing meals alone was putting a, a pretty big strain on the staff at a time when a lot of your staff has, out of an abundance of caution, been told to stay home. Give us an update.
3: Uh, Craig, thanks so much for asking. Uh, Things at the Bay Area Rescue Mission have changed significantly, uh, especially in the light of the uh, coronavirus, COVID-19. You know, in in the last uh, six weeks, Craig, we have actually seen nearly 400 people accept Christ as their Savior. Now, people come to the rescue mission often looking for a place to get a meal, to spend a few nights, uh, emergency shelter, and quite often uh, in sitting through an evening chapel service, uh, getting involved with the mission. Uh, many of them will accept Christ as their savior they see the great need that they have in their lives of being homeless and being desperate but during the last uh, 6 or 7 weeks now uh, those numbers have dramatically increased during a season when we normally would not see that kind of activity the number of meals that we were serving uh, up until a couple uh, about a week ago uh, had increased by nearly 30%. And then as uh, government officials uh, from from our state, from the governor's office, from the county health departments, from uh, the county health departments, of seven of the nine counties that touched the Bay uh, started to put in place uh, more restrictions on shelter-in-place and initiating their own housing elements uh, we've seen a significant drop off in the number of meals that we're needing to provide right now because the county uh, basically has moved people from our short term emergency shelter uh, which i will say we had zero positive uh, results on the coronavirus uh, outbreak We've moved people from our short-term emergency shelter into hotels uh, in different parts of Contra Costa County. And uh, so what we have going on right now is our long-term recovery program for the homeless and needy that came in, uh, wanted help in changing their lives uh, beyond just short-term emergency shelter over we're discipling them and helping them through Bible studies and uh, a lot of different activities that help them to get their lives back on track. Uh, So that activity is in full full force, Uh, a lot going on there. But uh, we feel somewhat heartbroken to a certain degree that when a homeless person comes up to the rescue mission uh today and ask if we have a place that they could spend the night we have to tell them because of the county's order that uh i'm sorry we can't do any new intakes uh for the homeless and needy and the question that they usually ask is well then where can we go and the truth of the matter is because of the county's ordinance and orders from the health department, we have to tell them there's no place that you can go right now. That uh, The county has restricted every uh, homeless shelter agency in the county from doing any intake of homeless people. And uh, they won't even do intake of new homeless people at the hotel systems. So we're trying to work through all of that. While still maintaining our long-term recovery programs. And, uh, yeah. Honestly, Craig, I went out uh, about a week ago and bought a hundred sleeping bags, a hundred pup tents, pretty inexpensive, a hundred New Testaments with the Psalm and Proverbs, uh, some meal vouchers, different things like that. And we are providing people that come to our doors uh, right now with uh, a sleeping bag, a tent, a New Testament, food, and water, and uh, saying, look, we would love to have you stay with us. We truly would. It's what we do as a ministry, but because of the county's orders from the health department, we can't do that for the time being. We tell them about Jesus. We share the gospel with them. Many are still getting saved. They they understand the desperate situation that they're in,
0: and uh, so that that's that's a lot to digest. There, Craig, it, it it is indeed. And and as as much as I'm hearing you indicate that a lot of the current health regulations are stifling. A lot of the ministry that normally takes place on a routine basis, um, physically inside the doors of the Bay Area Rescue Mission, you're able to do things outside. That's encouraging. I think maybe the the wake-up call here is the realization, and I'm sure this is already going through your mind and the minds of the staff, and that is that once the the shelter-in-place orders are relaxed the impact to the economy of the San Francisco Bay Area, much as it has been and will be across the nation, where we see upwards of 30 million people that have filed unemployment and folks that are wondering how are they going to pay the rent and recognizing that even with a stimulus check of $1,200 in the Bay Area, that doesn't pay the rent, that the need to minister to needy families. And I think what we're going to see, John, is an explosion in the number of homeless individuals and families in the coming months in the aftermath of this COVID-19 pandemic. And that's where the work of the Bay Area Rescue Mission is really going to become vitally important, desperately important. And I think it's going to be vitally important that we as the church stand with your ministry to make sure that you have the tools and resources you need to meet that what will surely be a major long-term crisis.
3: Uh, We absolutely agree, Craig. We're planning for that. We're in the process of getting ready for it. We were starting to see, in fact, we were significantly, significantly seeing the impact uh, when it was, you know, we were talking about 12 or 13, 14 million people that were unemployed. Now we're at 26 million or more nationwide. you know, our, our numbers were increasing significantly before these new restrictions were put in place. And you're absolutely right. We're going to see record numbers of people who are homeless, who have lost their jobs, and those jobs, some of them won't be coming back, uh, that have lost their homes, and they're hungry, they're hurting. Uh, it's a great opportunity to share the gospel. It truly is, uh, and to reach out and try to help people as best we can uh, to walk with the Lord, to know the Lord, and to reclaim uh, a bit of normalcy in their lives.
0: Well, it's going to be a challenge, no doubt, for all of us. And, John, I know that you need to run to another appointment, so I don't want to keep you, but I do appreciate you taking the time to update our listeners. Folks have called and wondering, what's going on? How can we help the Bay Area Rescue Mission? And uh, as you're understanding here from our conversation with its executive director, John Anderson, it's a fluid situation. But it's one that certainly is beginning to emerge with a picture that's indicative of the idea that once things return to normal, I'm using my air quotes here with my fingers, normal, life will be changed greatly across the country and certainly in the Bay Area. And there are going to be people that are going to be badly hurt by this financially, who are going to be challenged in terms of their health, and all of whom are going to be in the need of a message of hope. We attempt to deliver that every day here at KFAX, and we partner with important ministries that are on the front lines of that kind of crisis help and hope delivery every day. So we encourage you to pray for Reverend Anderson and the team at the Bay Area Rescue Mission and to think about supporting this ministry organization, um, there will be in a very short order an opportunity to strengthen the uh, the tent stakes, as scripture says, and to ready the house for the onslaught of need, physical need, need for housing, need for hope, and a message of encouragement. And so be in prayer for the Bay Area Rescue Mission and stand with them financially, information available on the web about their fantastic work at bayarearescue.org forward slash donate that's bayarearescue.org our thanks to reverend john anderson the executive director of the bay area rescue mission for giving us an update it's amazing and challenging times to be sure a time when we need as a nation the people to be seriously in prayer right now though let's pause and get you an update on traffic